Welcome back to Part B to Barashat Balak. My name is Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. And we have been talking about Bilam, the prophet for hire, and Balak, the king of Moab. And what has happened is, is uh, the children of Israel have been successful in a campaign against some people groups within the proximity of Moab. The king of Moab has observed this uh, victory. And um, he noticed that this is not really your ordinary average type of people. I mean, here they are waging a military campaign, and yet they're they're not doing it with a the military. There are no chariots, there are no horsemen, there are no archers, and yet these people win. Is it their sheer numbers, or is it something else? So this king of Moab, um, Balak, he decides that he better get... Um, he better take action before he becomes the next uh, defeated group of people. And so he, desires, he decides to, uh, as it were, fight fire with fire. He becomes aware, and I've described it this way in Part A, he must have become aware of the supernatural element of the, um, of the victories of Israel. We know, of course, you and I, the people reading the story and the people listening to my podcast, we, of course, know that the reason that Israel is winning is because Israel's God is fighting for them. So, so Balak is not too far from the truth. There is a supernatural element to the fight. And so Balak decides to fight fire with fire by hiring a prophet to curse Israel. And uh, he figures if he can maybe curse them, then uh, maybe perhaps he can defeat them. Well, Bilam... Um, converses with God on three occasions. And the first time, uh, well, yes, on the first time, um, God says, don't go. Uh, you know, it, it's not going to happen. And so Bilam listens. But the, uh, the messengers that Balak sent to Bilam to persuade him to curse Israel, uh, in fact, do their job. They become persuasive. And so Bilam second-guesses God's um, instruction. He decides to go with the messengers. God uh, acquiesces, allows Bilam to go. But God says, don't say anything other than what I'm supposed to, and, and other than what I tell you to do, uh, or tell you to say. Bilam takes off real fast on his way to meet them. God, seeing into his heart, realizes that Bilam is headed, for, headed pat, down the path of destruction towards a greedy gain, and he's, in fact, going to step out of the will of God. And, and again, we, we talked about how that this is peculiar, because Bilam does not seem to be a genuine prophet in the sense that he's a good prophet. Now, he is a real prophet. He's hearing from God. He's conversing with God. He even knows the ineffable name of God, the, you know, the, the Tetragrammaton name. And yet, he is not following God's ways. And so we pick up the story uh, right after Bilam has actually uh, gone to the uh, king of Moab, to Balak. He's, they go to a high hill. He curses them, gives them three um, um, oracles. And in the third oracle, the Ruach HaKodesh actually enters into or overpowers uh, Bilam, as it were, and, and Bilam utters a blessing that has been recorded for us down to this day in your average prayer book, and uh, that was at the top of page three. Uh, How lovely are your tents, Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. This prayer, or this blessing, I should say, has been uh, preserved in a, a standard Jewish prayer book. And so we find out that God has made a covenant with Israel, and God, in his, God for his part, has agreed that the offspring of Abraham will be blessed, and that anyone who tries to ally themselves against the offspring of Abraham is going to find themselves contending with the God of Abraham. 
So God, remember in Genesis chapter 12, the first few Pesukim said, I'm going to bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to curse anyone who attempts to curse you. And so we see this in effect right now. Balak is asking Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam, uh, Balaam is how most of you are used to hearing his name pronounced in English circles, Balaam. But uh, Balaam tries to curse Israel. God does not allow it. God, in fact, causes Balaam to utter a blessing instead. And so what we're learning is that God is a covenant God. God keeps his covenant that he makes to the forefathers, to the people of Israel. And because we are now attached to the people of Israel through Israel's God, then you and I, who name the name of Yeshua, name the name of God, we can also understand that this blessing relates to us as well. So what we're going to do in part B is we're going to um, dive a little deeper into the warning that um, has been given to us throughout the, the unified word of God that we cannot um, attempt to go against uh, the plans that God has engineered both for uh, the patriarchs as well as for us, his people. God makes promises, and we can understand and we can rest assured that God is going to make good on those promises. He's not going to allow any, um, as it were, any any force in heaven or any force on the earth or any, any created being under the earth to undo that which... Uh, which he has promised cannot be done. That is to say, namely, curse his people. Now keep in mind, the people in the story that we're reading, even though they can't be cursed, Bilam does in fact get them to play the whoring partner by uh, taking for themselves foreign women, something which displeases God. And in this displeasure, in this judgment, God ends up judging the people. And wow, 24,000 people end up dying as a result. So, um, perhaps Bilam succeeded. He didn't curse them, but gosh, he certainly uh, he certainly took a bite out of them, as it were. So let's pick up the reading, let's pick up the, the, uh, the study at the bottom of page 3, with a section entitled, Our Stark Warning. Now the hour, of course, is us, you and I, reading the Bible, reading the Torah portion, studying the commentaries, listening to the podcasts. Let's turn now to the um, New Covenant book, the Apostolic Scriptures, to the book of Jude, or its Hebrew name is Yehuda. And couched in this tiny book, we hear the Torah's final warning uh, against men like Bilam. Now, we've already looked at um, the warning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. We've also seen that uh, throughout the Tanakh, we saw in Joshua, in Nehemiah, and in Micah, that this particular incident becomes a, um, a warning. So let's now pick up the reading in Jude, and I want to read the, 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 um, I want to read the warning at, at length. This is Jude uh, verses 3 through 13. Remember, Jude is just one book. There's no chapters. It's just really one chapter, if you want to call it that one book. No chapter breakdown. So let me read verses 3 through 13 at length out of the New International Version, and then I'm going to um, um, paraphrase and uh, uh, bring our lesson home. Quote, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. 
though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the arch, uh, the archangel, uh, archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up, in their, sh uh, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever end quote that's a powerful passage i love the uh the fact that jude seems to be very uh practical in his approach he doesn't seem to water down the warning he doesn't seem to uh sugarcoat it he just tells it like it is he describes the danger involved uh, 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 in these men uh these godless men who um who come into our assemblies, how did he say it, our, uh, our love feasts, I think he said earlier on. Um, these men creep in unawares, and uh, because of that, um, it's, it's because of their, 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 um, their, their, the fact that they are un unknown by, by some within the community, that they are all the more dangerous. And so, again, uh, couched within the, uh, the warning, we have all these, you know, these examples, then Bilam shows up. Here he is. Yeah, you read it. Balaam's error. Bilam provides for us an example of what? A godless man who seeks his own personal gain. And if you think about it, as far as a group is concerned, you don't want someone who's greedy and selfish, You, especially if this person is, is, is a, um, a prophet type or a leader type or an influential person in the group. Bilam, if you'll recall, had a track record. He could speak with God, and God spoke back to him. How that's possible, I don't know. God speaks to whom he will. Uh, we just know that that's, that's the way the story plays out. And so it's a very dangerous um, um, uh, reality that we have people like this within our own groups. We, we the sheep, we have to be very, very careful about uh, who we befriend and who we... Um, who we who we just uh, uh, let speak to our people and uh, who in fact wields influence. The Book of Revelation, as well in the um, in the Apostolic Scriptures and my examples here, it's going to put a cap on Bilam, uh, 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 an end that is, uh, to this um, 
to using him as an example in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. And in that book, it even tells us that the incident with the women at Baal Peor, the, you know, the incident where Balaam finally was able to get God to judge the children of Israel, that the incident at Baal Peor also involved idolatrous acts of eating meat offered to idols. And now we can understand why God was so upset. It wasn't that they just married foreign women, but that in this marriage, I, I, I can understand that um, the pagan people groups uh, got Israel to... Um, compromise their standards, as it were. And so, uh, as is typical in many wedding feasts, then they offered this meat up to idols, and Israel participated. And we all know from other uh, passages that to eat meat offered up to idols is tantamount to participating in the idolatry of the, um, of, of the, uh, uh, the false gods themselves. Uh, it's not simply a meal, is what I'm trying to say. It's not merely just eating food. There's a lot more involved from the biblical perspective as to eating meat offered up to idols. So, how did the people fall? How did they? How, how is it that they withstood the curses, but fell to their own baser nature? As I as I asked the question in part A. Well, again, and and uh, you know, I I could pick on other people, but <laughs> as I'm so off to do, I'll just pick on myself. I've seen this lesson played out in my own life all too well. You know, what's happened is, is uh, I study the Torah, I pray, I press into God. I do the things that I'm supposed to do, you know what I mean? Um, we all have a certain standard of holiness that we uh, try to maintain. And so we, we do the required um, uh, steps, we, we, you know, we take the required steps necessary to maintain a right life, a uh, right um, relationship with God. And so what we do is we brace ourselves for the attack from the adversary. I do this myself. I brace myself for the attack or for where I perceive the attack is going to come. Or sometimes it's not the adversary who's attacking. It's um, quite often, you've heard this taught before in church circles, oftentimes the devil doesn't need to do a single thing because our own flesh is so busy defeating us um, when it comes to matters of holiness. So I brace myself for the attack from the adversary or from my own flesh. And just when I think I've got all the bases covered, when I think I'm successful, wham, I get hit from the blind side. That's right. I get sucker punched. And so we've got to understand that it's not good enough. At least I've got to understand this. It's not good enough that I brace myself, that I, that I um, quote-unquote, cover all the bases under my own uh, watch, under my own provision. Really, if I don't understand that it is all about God's provision in my life, it's all about God's protection in my life, then really I'm leading, leaving the door wide open for defeat. And so it's not wrong to do all that we can do, but we've got to understand that God is the one who ultimately provides the protection. God was the one protecting Israel. God was the one who told Bilam, no, you can't curse them because I have determined that you cannot curse that which I have blessed. God was the one who said that. And Bilam knew. But Israel fell prey to what? Their lustful passions, which was their blind side in this case. Idolatry was going to, was going to play the, um, the, the blind side in Israel's history for several years to come. It's unfortunate that this, this is Israel's uh, recorded history, but nevertheless it is. It isn't really until after the Babylonian captivity of, of the tribes of Judah... Um, which was, of course, Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. It wasn't until after, after this captivity, when the people were brought back into the land, after they came out of Babylon, that they were really finally broken, as it were, within their, their spirit 
when it came to their penchant lust for idolatry. But for now, we're going to see Israel time and time again playing the harlot, falling for idolatrous um, offers, uh, the you know the, the the sexual favors of the false gods, um, the 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 uh, the loose women, the um, the the uh, the pagan festivals and and the forbidden meat that comes offered at these festivals time and time again israel would find themselves uh enthralled with 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 the um the the uh, fetishes and the um uh, uh the, you know the amulets and the the talisman all of the things that they would carry with them as they carried the articles of god and you know what god was not pleased and he wasn't fooled he knew all along that Israel was 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 having she she had her husband, which was God, and on the side she had her lovers, which were the Baalim, and the the Ramphan and the uh, the Hyun, and uh, and and all these other things. This was her blind side, and this was where um, Bilam was able to get Israel to fall. Now the blessing of the Lord was their strong side, and that's the lesson for us today. That's where the warning is. We've got to understand that if we want God's favor in our lives and we've got to turn to him we've got to avail ourselves of his of his protection we've got to avail ourselves of his spirit of his word uh, of his promises we've got to maintain a healthy viable relationship with God and so blessed be the Holy One that he extends covenant provision and protection to anyone who will who will continue to press into the relationship themselves so the, the point is very clear it goes to show that we all have weaknesses in areas that we least suspect at times, and that we are all in need of the supernatural protection of Almighty Hashem. But also goes to show that when we fall, we can't blame God. You know, Israel just cannot blame God for their failures. God is the one who was providing the protection. God was fighting their battles. God was God was blessing them. He said to Abraham, I'm going to bless your offspring. But Israel couldn't see it. No. And what ends up happening is they fail, and then they cry out, and they say, God, why did you allow this to happen? And God says to them, and I'm going to paraphrase something that Norm Franz is fond of saying, a curse without a cause cannot come. You get it? You, in your disobedience to me, have opened the door wide for me to allow the curses to come into your life. And you know what? We can name it and claim it all we want. We can, we can plead the blood of Jesus all we want. But if we are walking in disobedience to God's words and God's ways, if we have allowed the relationship with God to grow cold and we have turned a deaf ear to God's um, um, pleadings to come back to Him, then God has no choice. He's covenantally bound to allow the curses to be enacted in our lives. And when diminishment of blessing falls into our lap, we have no one to blame but ourselves. It's a very powerful lesson, and I pray that today, after reading the Torah portion, that we can, we can strengthen ourselves with the reality that God does not desire curse. God's desire is that we would be blessed, and that we would be refreshed, that we would be uh, replenished, that we would be strengthened. Be strong and courageous, God told Joshua. And that is the, that's, what God, uh, um, that's what God desires of us today. And so, again... The choice is ours. We're going to find this out in the book of Deuteronomy when we get to it. The choice is ours. Choose life and blessing or choose death and cursing. Which one will you choose? May we learn and understand from this valuable Torah lesson that is laid out so clearly for us in the ever-practical pages of God's gracious word. Amen.
Amen. Let's turn now to a, um, a kind of an excursus section in my commentary. If you're following the written notes, we're near the top of page 5. And what I did earlier on in my commentaries is I ran a series called the Nahar Dea series. Nahar Dea means river of knowledge. Nahar means river. Dea means knowledge. And in the Nahar Dea series, I was using notes from the um, Jerusalem... Uh, gosh, where did I get these from? Well, actually, I, I pulled them from various different sources, sometimes from uh, uh, Jerusalem Online uh, um, notes, other times from other commentaries or other uh, rabbinic sources. This time I want to use um, some information in my excursus on Nahardea from uh, the set of the uh, papers, uh, publications, uh, Gilyanot is what they're called in Hebrew, from our deceased Torah teacher Nahama Leibovitz, titled, may her name uh, may her memory uh, um, be um, remembered. May her name not soon be forgotten. Um, she's a most excellent Torah teacher, and um, she's one that I prefer to uh, look to when I'm looking into my commentaries. You can get her information online. Let me see. Did I put in the book footnote here? I didn't do it on my written commentary. I tell you what, um, when I get home, I'm not home right now. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, believe it or not, as I'm recording this commentary, I'm sitting downtown in the middle of downtown Denver. And I'm sitting outside of a, a building, a bank. I'm actually waiting for my wife to get off work. And then I've got a few moments. And so I've got my podcast. I've got my iPod. And I've got my notes. And so I'm recording this podcast. And so when I get home, what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll actually uh, put in the footnotes uh, on the bottom of page 6 as to where this particular um, uh, Gili note from Nahama Leibovitz came from. Okay, I'll do that later. But for now, I don't have it. So let's read the notes here. because, And the reason I quote them is because they have to do with the story of Balaam. Or Bilam, and I want to um, make us privy to these this information. Okay, here we go. Quote: The story of Balaam presents a number of difficulties, some of which we have dealt with on previous occasions. Uh, we shall devote our studies this time to discussing the following question asked by Abravanel. Now, what's interesting is um, Leibovitz likes to quote Abravanel quite often, and he's an, he's just another sage. Here's the quote from Abravanel: Quote: Why did God prevent Balaam from cursing the Israelites? Why should they have cared about his curse uh, about his curse as long as the Lord blessed his people with peace? The Torah places no faith in divination and magic. Only the heathen deities were limited in their powers, which were circumscribed by occult laws. They were powerless to break a spell or dissolve the potency of a malediction. But such was not the portion of Jacob. Even Balaam had to admit that. And if you recall, he admitted that there was no divination in Jacob. He goes on to say, The whole of our Sidra is concerned with discrediting superstition and belief in magic pra magical practices. This is the aim of the story of the ass. You remember the talking donkey. Balaam was proceeding to curse a whole nation with his mouth. He, the seer and prophet, who claimed to probe the mysteries of time, could not even see what his ass beheld. End quote. Now, it's, again, it's an interesting... Um, interesting uh, uh, contrast here we have a man who can converse with the almighty and yet he's traveling down the road an angel blocks the path and the donkey sees it but the man of God doesn't see it the prophet can't see huh. isn't that an interesting uh, uh, observation out of uh, the uh, the um, the uh, Midrash Rabbah series um, Leibovitz pulls a quote the most foolish of animals confronted the wisest of men, yet the moment it spoke, he was confounded. End quote. That's taken from um, 
uh, Bimidbar Rabbah 20 and number 12. Uh, Leibovitz goes on to say, In that great event, greater force is added to our original question. What significance indeed could be attached to the curse of such a personality, and why was it necessary to turn it into a blessing? Some commenters suggest that this was done to teach Balaam a lesson, that he was not his own master. No magical rites, uh, that is to say, you remember, um, you remember Balaam had told uh, Balak to uh, build me seven altars, you know, build me seven altars, and then I'll, I'll do this, and then, and then I'll do that, and then I'll do this. And, uh, and he kept trying to um, uh, find a way to, uh, as it were, conjure up, uh, the, 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 the muster up the magic necessary to curse Israel. But um, Leibovitz points out that no magic rites could prevail over the supreme master, who is God. He, uh, Balaam, had no choice but to utter the words of the Almighty, uh, after they had been put into his mouth. and um, Because that's what it says in chapter 23, verse 5. And the Lord put a word in the mouth of Balaam, or Balaam. Is it 25, 23, 5? I don't think so. Let me check real quick. <clears throat> I think I might have a typo in my commentary here. Let's double check. 23, verse 5. Then Adonai put it. Yes, it is 23, verse 5. Okay, not a typo there. Okay. So, um, and I talked about this earlier on, that God can and will use humans to do his bidding even at the, and this is going to sound disturbing, but even against the will of the human involved if God deems it necessary. So, um, Bilam had already decided that he was going to curse Israel. He'd gone against what God had said. He, he went after greedy gain. He decided that the price... Uh, that was being offered by the king, by Balak, was too high to turn down. And so Bilam proceeded to curse Israel as, as he thought he would. But God overrided Bilam's um, foolishness. God overrided Bilam's desire there. And even though it was the opposite of what he wished to say, he ended up blessing Israel instead. Now, others maintain, however, that the curses were actually turned into blessings, not so much as to teach Balaam a lesson, but as to benefit Israel. Uh, did Israel need his blessing? In other words, that's the question that Nakama Leibovitz is asking us right now. Did, did Israel need to be blessed at this point in time? Surely the Almighty was the true source of all blessing, and it was he who blessed Israel, right? Right. The answer given to this is that Balaam's words, objectively speaking, maledictory or otherwise, uh, were of no effect. In other words, that's what the sages have come to conclude in some cases. It depended on the Almighty to do good or evil, is what point is being made. But subjectively, from the point of view of the Israelites themselves, who had been reared in Egypt on magic and superstition, remember, the people were really prone um, to superstition. I mean, they were a product of their environment. And this is true of, of many people groups today. For instance, if you go travel to some third world countries where there's a lot more, um, or even just other parts of America, where maybe magic and, and, and ritual play a more important impacting uh, part in your average society. Let's say, for instance, we were to travel down to the islands like the Caribbeans, maybe like Jamaica or, or something like that, where there's a lot more superstition than there is in, si in say, maybe mainstream uh, Colorado, where I'm at, in Denver, right in the heart of Denver. I don't, I don't find um, an overabundance of superstition, uh, at least to the level that I might find in some parts of, say, 
either Caribbean or the Caribbean like I'm naming or maybe even just in uh, parts of Louisiana of our own country. The point is, if the people are more superstitious, then the mere um, mention of either a blessing or a curse could cause the people to take that blessing and or curse a lot more serious than, say, maybe some of us would if we were not maybe raised in that society. And um, the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and there was a lot of the dark arts in, Israel, in Egypt, a lot, of, uh, a lot of occultic activity in ancient Israel. And so the people themselves that, who had been reared in Egypt on magic and superstition, to them, perhaps his utterances as sorcerer-in-chief of the nations were bound to have a considerable impact. And that's the point that we're trying to make that Nahama Leibovitz is trying to bring up in her commentary. And, of course, um, let's turn to one of the sages to get a... Um, uh, to get confirmation of this. Let's turn to the explanation outlined by Joseph Eben Cosby, okay? He has to say, quote, The curse of Balaam had no objective potency, neither in terms of the author of the author or the deed. You know, that is to say, either Balaam himself or what he was trying to do were basically harmless in God's opinion. Its effect must only be considered from the point of view of those at the receiving end, a.k.a. the um, uh, viz, the children of Israel themselves. Balaam was a renowned sorcerer, and people were impressed both then and now by sorcerers and diviners. I, I, I have to agree. There is no point in asking the reason for the belief of, of Balak and his company, just as there is no reason for doing so in the case of Jacob and Esau, who attached such importance to their father's blessing. You remember the story? Jacob, if you recall, usurped, as it were, the blessing from Esau. Um, he actually tricked his father into blessing him instead when Asav was supposed to receive the blessing of the elder. And once the blessing was issued or, or, or uttered, um, then um, when Asav went to get the blessing and his father told him, I have already blessed you, because you know his father, uh, uh, blind uh, um, um, Isaac, thought that he had blessed uh, Jacob. I'm sorry, he thought he had blessed Esau when in fact he had blessed Jacob instead. And yet, what, what did you notice, remember the reaction of Esau himself? He cried out, please, Father, bless me. I mean, in today's 21st century terms, we're thinking, what's the big deal? Esau, get over it. It's just a blessing. But now we can understand that back then, or in the case of places where blessings and curses are, are given considerable, considerably more weight than they are in your average mainstream um, uh, uh, society of today, uh, at least in societies where, where higher learning seems to take more importance, where we don't give credence to quote-unquote superstition. We can understand why, if Bilam was going to curse someone, then the, uh, the, most, important, um, the most important feature of the curse is going to the people on the receiving end. So that's, that's where uh, Joseph Eben Cosby is going with his explanation. Let's, let's pick up his quote again. Let me just back up one sentence. Um, there's no point in asking the reason for the belief of Balak and his company, just as there's no reason for doing so in the case of Jacob and Esau, who attached such importance to their father's blessing. If they did, how much more so the Israelites of those days, in particular the women and the children, who would be greatly affected by the maledictions of such a renowned sorcerer. End quote. So again, we see, perhaps now we're seeing an aspect of the story that we don't capture at a cursory reading of the story if we don't really pick up the uh, rabbinic insights here. So, and I think the rabbinic insight here as far as the, um, the superstitious level of the whole incident is very, very important. If not, I mean, it's not necessarily maybe the main feature, but um, 
to, to, to understand that it is the, the tone behind what's going on, especially since this incident took place so long ago, uh, it would be foolish for us to ignore the data that we're, um, that we're uh, pouring through at the moment. Nakama uh, uh, Leibovitz goes on to conclude, a true, friend will, a true friend will save his colleague any pain, even if he knows that no danger will ensue. Similarly, the Almighty, out of the abundance of his love for Israel, prevented Balaam from cursing them, though he was aware that his curses were impotent. Okay? That's the whole point. God knows that Balaam could not have cursed Israel, because God himself is more powerful than any rogue uh, prophet wannabe or any prophet for hire, okay? any sorcerer for hire. God knows that his word is more powerful, and yet... Um, what the sages are trying to suggest here is that what God is doing is he's really considering the feelings of Israel. How would they feel if they saw Balaam up there cursing them? They're, they would think, oh no, we're going to be cursed. Or something to that effect, right? Uh, Leibovitz goes on to conclude, but the Almighty did not rest content with this. He went so far as to make Balaam bless the people to give them pleasure, as it is stated, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam. And that's a lifted... That's a quote lifted from Deuteronomy 23, verse 6. This is after Moshe's recalling the story uh, and telling it to the second generation. He tells the, the children um, that the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam. Now, uh, Leibovitz goes on to say, The reason of this was because the Lord loveth thee. Of course, this is um, Moshe's words. Uh, similarly, it is recorded in Joshua 24, verse 9 through 10, Balak called Balaam to curse you but I would not hearken to Balaam. Therefore, he even blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. End quote. And this, of course, means that uh, God delivered the Israelites out of his hand according to his idea of the power of his own words and that of some of the children of Israel. Nahama Leibovitz goes on to conclude, at any rate, he delivered them from hearing his curse all out of love for his people, end quote. And um, again, um, I'll get back with uh, those of you who have the written commentary. I'll go ahead and add the um, uh, the, the, the um, address as to where I got this quote from Nahama Leibovitz in case you want to look it up and um, uh, look at the entire context. But with that, we'll call this part B, and it's only 34 minutes into the commentary, and we're going to call it the end of the commentary. How's that? We'll go ahead and end off with a closing blessing for the Torah, okay? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vechaye olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. With that, I wish you all Shabbat. Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, 
Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.